Each first Sunday of each new year, we have a tradition here at Orchard of looking at all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the very beginning to the very end of the entirety of the Bible. Now, I looked around and asked a few people if they'd be willing to read the text for this morning, and surprisingly, nobody picked me up on that. Um, I, I don't know why, but uh, it's probably for the best. We'd be here a long, long time. But I do hope it's not as hard as you think. And I do hope that throughout the year, you can make it a practice of reading through the word of God. In the beginning of a new year, we all make plans. We set goals. We try to say this is what we want to come out of this new year. And each year we're having to evaluate our plans, adjust our plans. I was joking with someone the other day. We were talking about planning something and it was sort of like, well... If we can, who knows? Who knows if we'll be able to get together or not? It's the way plans have gone the past couple of years, isn't it? Constantly shifting, constantly changing. And the truth is, that really is all the time. The, Lord's, or the Bible says we should plan if it is the Lord's will. If this is going to happen. We have to hold on to our plans loosely. But today I want to look at the big picture of God's great plan. Because sometimes we look at our plans and say, hmm, that might fall apart. I don't really know everything. Things might change. And then we take that and we look at God in the same way. Like, well, God's plans, I hope they work out, but they might not. He might have to adjust and rearrange and kind of react to things. That's not the way the Lord works. God's not watching what happens on the earth and then changing his plans every year. God does not make New Year's resolutions. He made a resolution in eternity past before anything ever happened. He set a plan in motion from beginning to end that has never changed. And we have the big picture of that plan right here in our Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the big picture of God's perfect and great plan. Now, I grew up going to church for which I am eternally grateful I'm so thankful for all the Sunday school teachers uh, when I was a little kid in junior high school and senior high school. I'm so thankful for youth group leaders. I am so thankful for the time they put in. I'm thankful for my parents that forced us, dragged me at times to church. I did not want to go when I was a kid. Did not want to go in junior high. It wasn't until high school. I was like, okay, I really need this. I'm starting to really believe this. But I remember hearing the Sunday school stories, right? Moses taking the Israelites through the Red Sea. Noah building the ark. And, and the teacher would look at us and ask, now, how can we be more like Moses? He was a man of great faith. Look at what he did. How can we be more like Noah? He was a man of great faith. How are you like Noah in your life? And I grew up thinking of the Bible in this way. Reading about people in Scripture. Peter, Paul, how can I be more like them? I'll tell you as I've become an adult and spent more time in the Word of God, I've come to understand that way of reading the Word of God is completely backwards. Completely. Not completely wrong, but it is the wrong starting point. It's okay to look at Moses and say, where do I need to have more faith to go through difficult times in my life? That's true. But the point of the story of Moses is not ultimately Moses. It is God. Moses only did what he did and could only do what he did because God is all-powerful and sovereign and had a plan. 
Noah could only do what he did because God is all-powerful and has a plan. So when we look at Moses and Noah, we start asking, who do we understand God to be because of what he did through these great people in Scripture? And then something amazing happens. You start realizing that the story of Abraham fits in a larger context. The story of Noah fits in a larger context. The story in Acts is a larger context. All of it is one story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. Now, I always feel the need to, because somebody always asks, when you say story, do you mean it's not true? Absolutely not. This is a true story from beginning to end. But I like thinking of it as a story because God is the author of history. He is not just writing his story from pen to paper. He is writing his story in the fabric of reality throughout all of eternity. We are the letters on the page that he is writing. This world is the letters on the page. It is true and it is real. But like all good stories... God's story has certain elements that we can look at to better understand what's going on. So let's do that. Let's start at the very beginning. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Such an important and powerful verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. The Bible assumes and declares the existence of God before anything else. It is right there in the first verse, the first sentence, the very first words. In the beginning, there's God. Where did God come from? Nowhere. He's always been here forever and ever through eternity past, and all things, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a way of saying everything from there to here and everything in between. God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things. Now, we don't have time to look at every single passage on every single thing. We'd be here forever. But God creates with a purpose and a plan. And we begin to see that in chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created humanity. God created humanity on purpose. God created humanity with a purpose. And it is God who gets to define that purpose. We live in a society that's trying to teach us today to find your purpose, find your meaning, find your reality, find your joy, find your identity. And we are so busy looking inward that we forget and we neglect that there is a God who created us for his purpose in his image. So God takes these people, Adam and Eve, that he creates for a purpose. And he puts them in a purposeful setting or place. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. There he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I love this because Genesis says God creates all things. He creates the whole earth. He fills it with what it needs. And it's very good, he says. But in the midst of that very good creation, he puts an incredible garden. Perfect. 
supplying everything humanity needs. And that's where he puts Adam and Eve. It's like he's telling us, don't miss this. This is how much I love you. I made a special place for us to live. And the other thing that's really interesting that we see is that God, later on in chapter 3, tells us God is walking in the garden. God made the garden not only for us, but for him so that he could meet with us. God's purposeful plan throughout all eternity is to be present with us, to have that close relationship. It is what you are created for. Oh, how often people struggle. and They say, God doesn't love me. God can't accept me. God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. And there in the first pages of Scripture, God's eternal plan is revealed. He longs to be with you. He has done everything possible. So some key themes here in the beginning. We see that God has a plan. He has a purpose. The purpose of that plan is to be with us. Now, like good stories, we also have a conflict. The conflict comes up in Genesis chapter 3. If we look at chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I just want to pause here for a second. How does Genesis say that God made the world? He spoke. He spoke the world and creation into existence. He spoke life into existence. He spoke light into existence. When God speaks, it is powerful. So powerful that he has an idea, he speaks it, and it becomes reality. And this created being, this serpent, we know later in scripture, this is the devil, Satan, Lucifer. We come along and this created being who was spoken into existence by God questions what God has said. Have you ever questioned whether or not God really said something? Now, I get it. Like some people say, I had a dream last night. I think God was telling me that those are good things to question. You should question whether or not that's God really speaking. Go to the word. That's where God truly speaks. And you can know whether or not it's God speaking to you. But when we come to God's word, we should not, like the serpent, ask the question, did God really say? So many people are living with loose leaf Bibles today. And this is what the serpent wanted all along. You know what I mean? Remember the old trapper keepers, the old three ring binders? Still have them. We want to just pop it open and say, I don't like this page. Rip it out. Throw it away. Well, this doesn't, this isn't my Jesus. Throw it away. This isn't my religion. I'm going to redefine my faith. I'm going to recreate what I believe. I'm going to redefine everything about God based on me. And we just change the Bible right there at the very beginning. We see what happens when we created beings look to God and say, I don't think so. We've got a better way of doing this. So the serpent causes them to doubt the very word of God. Genesis 3, 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. So now he's gotten them to question, and now he is completely undermining what God has said and saying the exact opposite. You will not certainly die. Then the conflict continues to grow. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
In the Hebrew way of thinking, this idea of knowing good and evil is an authoritarian statement. You will have the authority of God. You will be able to declare what is good and what is evil. You will be able to decide for yourself. You won't have to rely on God. And our modern American way of thinking, even as I say that, I'm thinking, yeah, a lot of people are thinking, yeah, decide for ourselves. Do what we think is right. Nobody else tells us what's right or wrong. But look at the very beginning. Who really knows what is good and what is evil? Only God. Only a holy God, as we sung earlier. And so, Satan tempts them with the authority to be like God. To throw God off his throne. Put themselves in his place. And here's the effect. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Sin is the great conflict of the world. Doesn't mean that God didn't know. He was fully aware this would happen. And he already had a plan in place. He knew the moment he created Adam and Eve, they were going to rebel against him. And he knew the moment he created them that when they rebelled against them, he had a solution ready to go. It was his son, Jesus, who would die on the cross. When God created humanity, he sentenced his son to die. He made a choice that if this is what it takes to have a relationship with us, he was willing to pay that price. That is mind-blowing to me. That God loves us that much. To create us knowing we would rebel. And yet choosing to send his son anyway. There's a lot of evidence early in scripture of this great conflict. Genesis 5 gives, it's one of those passages you might want to skip over. But it's the lineage from Adam to Noah. I'll just read a little bit. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. Do you see the difference there? We were created in God's image. Now he's having a son in his own image, which is messed up, marred, and confused. It says, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. And you go to his next child, and it says something similar. And then he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The very thing that Satan said would not happen, that he convinced Adam and Eve so clearly this would not happen, is exactly what happened. We live in a world where we, are, we have this conflict of sin against God's plan that results in our death. That is where our stories, apart from Jesus Christ, will end as well. And he died, and he died, and he died. We see in the flood, Genesis chapter 6, all the way through chapter 9, that God looks down and sin has run its course in this world. And God says, I need to put a limit on this. I also think that the story of the flood with Noah teaches us something very important. The problem is not just bad people. The problem is in each one of us. And if we simply change all the behaviors in the world, the problem is still there. Noah is a righteous man. His family presumably is righteous. God wipes out everybody else. No one in his family continues, but sin is still in the world. We don't need just a do-over. We need something better. 
And then we have another example of people trying to fix themselves in chapter 11, verse 4. You know what it maybe is the story of the Tower of Babel. It's often overlooked, but it sets up what comes next. The people are scattered around the world and they're trying to come together and they want to build a city. And this is what they say. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, a couple things to understand. In their mindset, their religious way of thinking, this building of a tower, this is not an office building. It's not a condo. This is not to provide more living space. This is a temple to worship. And the idea of the temple to worship is if we can make it as high as possible, we will reach to the gods and be able to control them, force them to respond to us. This was an action on their part to grab hold of their destiny, their life, and say, we can do this our way. We will make a name for ourselves. Did God create us to be important? You know, sometimes in Christian circles, we have this idea of, oh, I'm just a worm, I'm nobody. And yes, in our sin, that's true. But in our creation, that is not true. We were created to be in a relationship with God. He created us great. The problem is we settle for greatness that is so far less that we try to make for ourselves. And that's what they're doing here. And God knows if he allows them to go down this road, and he still does this today, if he allows them to be great in their own eyes, they will settle for that and miss out on what he has for them. So he scatters them and their tower is brought down. We cannot fix ourselves. God has a better plan. And so we begin to see this plan worked out that he puts in motion to continue to be with us and have us be with him in perfect relationship. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Don't worry, I will pick up the pace. The first part is so important. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God calls this man Abram. Now remember, God's already set up a world living in rebellion. People are scattered. Everything is going wrong. Sin is pervasive. And then God takes action. He says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you, and do you see that phrase? I will make you into a what? Great nation. What did the people of Babel want? They wanted to be great. What has every empire wanted since the beginning of time to be great? What does every American want for this country? Let's be great. And God says, no. It's not about making yourself great. Christians, Americans, we've got to depend on God for our greatness and nothing else. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's promise to this one man, Abraham, and his offspring who we would come to know as the Jewish people, the Israelites. Be very careful. This is not a verse to name it and claim it. We cannot take this and apply it to any other nation throughout history. God made this promise to them. We have a much better promise. Don't get me wrong. But it's not about a nation or land. 
It's about a savior. God promises something to Abraham. He takes this man in his pagan culture and he uproots him and puts him in a particular place that God has carved out for him that is special. Beginning to sound familiar? And he says, there I will be with you. Does that sound familiar? We're going right back to the Garden of Eden here. God says, same plan for me to be with you. Things don't go so well. Eventually, God's people have to go to Egypt. There's great famine in the land and they become enslaved. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, it says this, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. If you ever think God doesn't know what's going on in your life, here's a great example. God knows. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Heaviites, and Jebusites. I love that. God will rescue them. God takes the initiative in a sinful, messed up world to come to us to rescue us because we cannot do it ourselves. And he brings his people miraculously out of the land of Egypt. He saves them, doing something they could not do themselves. And he brings them to this place where he meets with Moses on the mountain and he gets the law. You might be familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Kind of, maybe you don't know them, maybe you can't rattle them off, but you kind of know what they are. It's kind of a syllabus of the rest of the law. It's like the main headings of everything else in the rest of the law. It sums up what's in the law, the basic Ten Commandments. But at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, it starts with this. Because it's so easy with the Ten Commandments or any other rule to say, well, my life's a mess. I just need to live to God's rules. If I could just obey the rules, everything would be good. I will fix myself up. Look at the beginning of the law here, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's where it starts. Any obedience to God needs to start with a focus on God, not on us. We get that so backwards. Oh, if I could just fix myself up, then I could have a relationship with God. God says, no, you're going to live different because I've already claimed a relationship with you. You are my people and I am your God. Now let's talk about what that looks like. You can't earn your relationship with God. You never could and you never will. And God never asks you to. He takes the initiative. They move into the promised land. We have the the cycle of the judges. You can read about that in the book of Judges. It is a very messed up book about a very messed up history of very messed up people, people I can completely identify with. And they're faithful. Things are going great. And then they walk away from the Lord and everything falls apart. And God rescues them and things are good again. And they're faithful and things are going great. Then they walk away from the Lord and everything falls apart. And then God rescues them. And it goes over and over and over again. And it leads up to these people that God had created, the Israelites, called into a relationship. They split in a civil war. They can't get along with each other. They each think that they are right. Eventually, God takes them into exile so that there 
he can get their attention. He brings them back from exile and they begin to return to the land. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah, which is all about that return to the land. Right now, I'm calling it God at work until I can think of something better. But this idea of God being at work in history, in his people. We have in the Bible, the Psalms and the wisdom literature that teach us what it looks like to live in relationship with God. We have the prophets calling God's people back to a relationship with him. And in those prophets, in this conflict-ridden world that the plan of God is being carried out, we see some incredible things about God's plan. He says to his people in Jeremiah chapter 4, If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray. And if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him and in him they will boast. God calls his people. He says, look, you've got to put me first. You've got to get rid of those idols, those other things that are pulling on your priorities and that you're putting in the place of God. We put all sorts of things in the place of God and the most, or the thing we put most often in the place of God is two letters, M-E or one letter, I. I want this. I know this. I am right. God says this. Well, I'm doing this. You just created an idol out of yourself. And we do it all the time. Jeremiah describes in brutal detail the effects of sin in this world. Listen to the language of how he describes this sinful world. Chapter 4, verse 23 to 26. He says this, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. He's looking at the world in a spiritual way. Yeah, we're physically a mess too, but he's specifically describing these things. Where is he getting this terminology from? Genesis chapter 1. Everything in this passage, has, except for the very end, has to do with creation. I looked at the earth and it was formless and void. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says that God creates the earth out of this formless and void thing. Nothingness. What Jeremiah is saying is we are returning to this chaos that God created us out of. We're trying to go back. We're undoing creation. You ever had one of those sweaters with like a little string hanging off? Anything? I'll just pull it. And it just starts unraveling all the way around and all the way around and around. Well, maybe I just need to pull harder. Maybe I just need to pull faster. Here, son, take this string and run that way as fast as you can. Go, go, go. And it's just unraveling. And Jeremiah is saying that's what our sin does to creation. We are unraveling creation. Fortunately, it's not ultimately up to us. In the middle of this dark, dark picture, God says his plan has never failed. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. These days are coming. 
the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new promise, a new relationship with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. See, the Ten Commandments and all of the Old Testament law was like a poster you could put on your wall. Do more of this. Do less of this. Be good, not bad. Words written out there to look at and say, I'm going to try to do that. But that can't change us because they're outside of us. And the problem is right here in the depths of our soul. And God says, here's my ultimate plan. I'm going to change you from the inside out. So that you will long to be obedient. Desire to be faithful. Love to be trusting in God. That's the idea of the new covenant. So we have here in this plan of God that he still wants to be with us and he is sovereign over all history, even over sinful situations to bring that about. God is sovereign. Even though the world seems to be falling apart, God's plan has never failed. We also see throughout scripture, humanity's sin is great and seeks to unravel what God is doing. All good stories have a turning point. That point where the hero steps up, does what needs to be done. The turning point in Scripture is in the New Testament. We have a man that comes onto the scene who is sent from God, who is so much more than just a man. You should know this because we just talked about it for the past five or six weeks. It's a baby born in a manger. And Matthew declares this in verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What did God want in the garden? To be with Adam and Eve. What did God want with Abraham and the Israelites? To be with them. What did God promise in Jeremiah? To be with them. What happens when Jesus is born in the manger? God is with us. Same plan, never changed, never failed. Jesus grows up. He lives a perfect, holy, sinless life. He shows this path back to God through him. But it's still a messed up, screwed up world, isn't it? And so one night he gathers his disciples. And he says this. He took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is my, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. They knew exactly what he was doing because this goes all the way back to Egypt, all the way back to the time of Moses when people were stuck in Egypt and God saved them. And he saved them by having them sacrifice a lamb and put its blood over their doorposts. And then God looked down and said, that's my person. I will rescue them. Jesus now takes that meal where they were remembering that rescue. And he says, I'm the lamb. 
I'm the one that's going to shed my blood for you. I'm the one that's going to die in your place so that God will look at you and say, you are mine. You're mine. Jesus then goes to the cross. The Son of God, who is Emmanuel, God with us, has his hands and his feet nailed to a cross and a crown of thorns shoved on his head. And in John 19.30, he cries out from the cross, It is finished. It's finished. There's the victory. Well, part of it. He has conquered death by dying in our place on the cross. What a beautiful picture of God's perfect plan from the beginning to the end. But I said that was part of the plan because the second part of the plan is the restoration of what God had created. Jesus doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave. First Peter 1, 3 through 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Do you remember what Jeremiah described? Do you remember how he said the undoing of God's natural world because of sin? Jesus here, through Peter, is telling us this promise that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, creation will keep going and will never fail. We live a brand new life through Jesus Christ. That's the victory. That's God's declaration that sin has not won and it never will. And it doesn't need to in your life. Often in a great story, you have a great battle, a great victory. But the story's not over yet because then you see the effects of that victory. And in so many ways in Scripture, we see that as well. We know it as the church. Christ has come, death has been conquered, new life has been provided, and then God shapes these people that follow Jesus, that believe in Him. We call them Christians. They are the church, those called out to believe in Jesus and trust in Him. And it still goes on today. That's why we're here. The plan has continued. Paul writes in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue. Continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Some of you need to take this New Year's and look at that verse over and over again. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. That prayer you prayed that one time, the VBS you went to when you gave your life to Jesus, the altar call you went forward, that one time in a sermon that you bowed your head and prayed, Jesus, save me, I believe. He says, just as you did that, continue. Continue. Go deeper. Soak up your nourishment from God's word instead of your own ideas. He says the same thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
we still live in a messed up world. A world where the temptation still comes saying, you know better than God. Oh, sure, he's great and awesome and powerful. Yeah, sure, but you're here in this situation. You can make your own choices. It's the same lie from the very beginning. And Paul in Romans tells us, do not conform to that pattern. Christians, do not think like this world. Do not think like the people of this world that think this is all there is. There is a plan that is in place and we need to have our focus on the sovereign God. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, after he had defeated sin on the cross and through his resurrection, he meets with his disciples one last time and he comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go into detail. This is our call as a church, though. Make disciples, followers of Jesus. Become better disciples, followers of Jesus. We keep going, trusting in the one who died to save us and is with us. One of the great effects of the cross is that in this dark world, God has called people to himself, saved them, and said, now be a light. And I love on Christmas Eve when we light the candles. I love it when that light spreads throughout the sanctuary. And the sanctuary goes from being this dim, dark place to being lit up with all these individual, puny, tiny little candles that we think are so insignificant. But because we are following together, God works through us and does something amazing. All good stories also have a conclusion. The Bible gives us the conclusion of the story of God. Jesus Christ is coming back. He promised that. We need to hold on to that. The victory that was won at the cross and through the resurrection will be known by everyone. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. He is right. I was wrong. Praise be to the Lord. But not all in that moment will be saved by Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 6 is such a powerful picture. And I want you to remember back to where we started this sermon. In the Garden of Eden with God's creative purposes. Listen to the similar language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's the conclusion of the plan. 
the plan that God had before he ever took a little bit of dust and scooped it together to make Adam. Before humanity ever entered the scene, God had a plan. And we see it right here in Revelation. All things have led up to this point where God will be with us, living in his perfect presence forever, and him providing for our every need. This is where God's great story ends. Well, actually, it's where it really begins. Because it's a new beginning. An eternity that will be defined by salvation through Jesus Christ and us living in perfect relationship with Him and sin has been wiped away. It's a new beginning. Friends, we live right now in this difficulty. We live between the victory in Jesus Christ and the conclusion of the story when Christ comes back. And in this in-between time, we are challenged to take the news of Jesus to all the earth. That's why you're here. I hope you're encouraged this morning. I hope you're challenged. I hope you you're, feel loved this morning. But, but more than anything, I hope we get a sense of a calling and a mission. We need to go out and take this truth to everyone in the world. It's a new year. It's just a number. Turning of a page on a calendar. But for some reason, it is so normal and natural for us to pause at the beginning of a new year and think, how do I want this year to be different? How do I want it to be better? Start where the Lord starts. Put your eyes on Him. Trust Him more this year. Commit to growing deeper in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Pour over the story of Scripture that God has given to you so that you can know Him more. Gather with others that are pouring over Scripture that you can encourage one another along the way. And watch for those moments. Those sovereign designed moments when an idea comes up in a conversation with someone else. Those moments that you think, I should tell them about Jesus. I should tell them about my faith. Watch for that moment and remember Jesus Christ telling his disciples, go and make disciples. And in that moment, remember, I'm part of a huge story. The story of God's perfect plan. And I'm saved by that story. And this person can be too. Tell them about Jesus and invite them into this perfect story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is humbling to look at Scripture and see your great plan. So often when I look at your great plan, I realize just how small and insignificant I am. And yet I am amazed that throughout your great plan, you look at people and you make much of them. You use them in powerful ways. You, you are good to us. You love us and shower us with your blessings as you see fit. And more than anything, Father, I am amazed that when we have turned and walked away from you, rebelled against you and your created purposes, you sent your Son to die on the cross to save us from our sins. We who are unworthy. And God, your word says that ultimately you did that because you had a plan and a purpose. And God, I praise you that your plan and your purpose led to my salvation 
and the salvation to others here. And that it leads to salvation in our city, in our neighborhoods, and in our families. You break down the firmest walls. You break down strongholds in our world and in our lives. And I pray that we would get our eyes off ourselves and put them on you and say, Father, I want to follow where you are going, not where I think I should go. And I pray as a church this year, we would be people of your plan and your purpose in everything that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.